Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This is The Guardian. Our black theorists are not just sitting in the academy. They're sitting in prison cells. They're on stages. They're on rooftops of police cars. They're in art galleries. They're on our Spotify playlists. Black theorising around races everywhere and we have to go to where... Hi, I'm Paul Daly. I'm an author and a columnist and feature writer for Guardian Australia. Welcome to Book It In, a show about the big ideas behind great books. My guest today is Mananjali and South Sea Islander woman, Chelsea Wadigo. She's the author of Another Day in the Colony, a book of essays that lays bare how First Nations people experience racial violence every day. Chelsea details the mundane and prosaic nature of racial violence in Australia and how this has impacted her and her family. For many years now in my writing, I've been exploring questions of Australian national identity and its amnesia when it comes to the history of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, especially in relation to the frontier violence and ongoing oppression that they experience. So I wanted to ask Chelsea about the continuum of that violence and how it manifests today, and whether Australia can yet be regarded as a post-colonial state. One of the many really engaging things about your book is the way you talk about your personal experience and, and that of your family. You really let readers in, I think, and it's, um, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing and terribly engaging. But I wanted to ask, you grew up in the 1980s in outer suburban Brisbane at the height of the oppressive, let's face it, Joe, Joe B. peterson years. What was your childhood like? And, and can you tell us a little about the home you grew up in and, and what it nurtured in you? So I grew up on the um, very outer southern suburb in Brisbane of Runcorn and we literally lived across from four lanes of traffic in a foundry that my father used to work in who had worked his way up off the foundry floor to drive the cranes to then become a, a truck driver. And mum worked the switch with the old KPMG telecom days doing shift work and I was the youngest of four of what Dr Jackie Huggins calls the cosmetically apparent uh, Aboriginal man and a white mother and in both of those families it was the first time that there'd been a marriage between black and white. We grew up working poor and we never went without but certainly there were a lot of times where there was some certainty around, you know, providing for four kids, particularly Dad being a black subcontractor truck driver at the whim of the trucking industry. So we we grew up with a very, you know, staunch working poor family, but we never knew that we were poor or problematic or there was something wrong with us. And um, I feel very 
fortunate to have been raised in a home where we didn't have any sense of that. But I remember, like, as a teenager, you kind of discover that apparently being poor is a bad thing or that there's something wrong with you. I knew there was something wrong with the world because I knew that uh, my parents worked really hard to provide for us, um, that it wasn't a matter of our lack or, you know, lack of work ethic. So we had to play sport. We had to go to church and we were very much raised with this sense of, you know, rising above racism that you can just outwork it, turn the other cheek. And not that you would just put up with it, but not to let it, not to accept the terms of it. And so, yeah, mum and dad, they never hid the fact that racism existed and there wasn't a sense that you accepted. And, um, you know, we, dad used to always tell us, like, don't you ever bow your head to anybody. Don't you ever think you're less than. So we had that strong kind of sense of armour, but a consciousness that the social world would read us in a different kind of way. And I, I guess it's a lot of those observations in childhood growing up that, I began to understand as I as I thought more about race, about why, you know, mum and dad did certain things. And as I started to raise kids, made me think about, uh, made me appreciate and understand that a bit more. Just a little further to that, Chelsea, how was the relationship between your mum, Elaine, and your dad, Vernon, viewed within your community at the time? And, you know, when he, when he said never bow to anyone, what sort of experiences was he referring to that might have been about their relationship and the way they were viewed in, in the place where you lived? Well, it's it's funny because I remember um, when Dad um, was dating Mum and my Mum's, you know, white father had said, like, if anyone's dating my daughter, I need to meet him. And Dad grew up in a time where black people didn't go into white people's houses you would stay outside and so he would never go inside and he talked about feeling uncomfortable at going inside and having to get over that in order to be able to see mum. He had a really good relationship with uh, mum's side of the family and so that was just how the world was at a time that he was raised. And I still remember even when we'd go as like to friends' houses as kids, dad would never come in. He would stay outside in the car out beyond the fence. It just, like, even as as adults, there was just this kind of observation of rules at the same time telling us, you don't bow your head. So there was these interesting kinds of um, ways of being that clearly I think at times he was contesting, but also that's what you know. And I I kind of appreciate that a bit more now as, as an adult having to grapple with race and think about what I tell my children and what I do and how I model that. Your dad, Vernon, is very present in this book. You know, growing up, what did your dad impart to you in terms of your ambition and your writing? And was there a big emphasis on education as 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 a way of social uh, intellectual mobility? Actually, no. Um, we had to go to school, but there was an expectation that um, you either you either go to school or you work. And all of my siblings, um, I think one may have finished grade twelve. Oh, maybe two have finished grade twelve. I'm not too sure actually. Um, and went to work on a retail and TAFE and stuff like that. And when I finished grade 12, I said I was going to go to uni and he was actually really appalled and really disappointed. At the time I was I was going to school and I was working part-time as a checkout chick at Coles and he just presumed that after school I'd go full-time. You know, there was no shame in being working poor. In fact, he was kind of cynical about those university types not doing real work. And it's something I still <laughs> grapple with, I think, about, you know, what constitutes real work. There was, you know, this rising above race but not via class. 
we had a strong sense of being proud of who you are and where you come from and and being proud of our home with its mismatched furniture because it was a home that anyone could come to and feel at home in. So there wasn't this kind of class aspiration and I think that's probably why you know, I still live in Anala. We didn't have that sense of become more wealthy and you'll be a better person. It was about being what does it mean to be a good person um, and do good work in your life. And how did the church play into that? Yeah, look, I have an interesting relationship with church and I think it's, it's you know, certainly the South Sea Island influence. My, um, from what I understand, from what I'm told, my uh, grandparents on my father's side became born-again Christians um, later on in life up in Bowen and North Queensland and my grandfather became a lay pastor and um, so on Dad's side of the family there's a very strong Christian influence. Yeah, but we were probably... Um, the less compliant Christians, so like a lot of our family either, you know, heavily involved in the church and would be Bible study and, you know, sing in church. Um, we would mostly attend church on a Sunday, often late. It was kind of like an observed ritual, but certainly there were things that um, certainly Sunday school and parables and this sense of social justice had a strong influence in how I saw the world. And I guess what I struggled with was the contradiction of Christianity in terms of what it espouses and the reality of what it's done to blackfellas. And um, let's just say it's complicated. Um, <laughs> um, so, yeah, we went to church for most of up until sort of about teenage years and then, you know, sort of didn't go much after that. But, yeah, I, I think there are some of the, you know, we're all God's children kind of stuff that frustrated me. Yeah, the contradiction of that. Um, bothered me quite a lot. But also this, you know, idea of this sort of monotheistic religion of there is only one God and the fact that there can't be, we can't have um, different accounts of, our, of, of how we came to be in this place, of how we understand our relationship with our creator and or creators. And so I struggled with the, the colonising agenda of Christianity, um, particularly evangelical Christianity, which has been particularly violent. And I know it's been really important and useful for a whole lot of blackfellas, but it's also been violent at the same time. Do you still worship? So I've, I, I've been to church every now and again, but I, do, I guess I do a few things. Like there's, there's times where I need to be go to certain places and so sometimes it's church, sometimes it's country, sometimes it's family. Um, so there are all kinds of ways where I, I, I practice a kind of spiritual healing and connection that is not restricted to going to a church built in some industrial estate in the outer suburbs. Mm. So, yeah, there's different places at different times. But, yeah, very not very consistently at all. Sorry, Nana. Um. <laughs> <laughs> you, you make it really clear that you wrote Another Day in the Colony for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander readers. And you know, I'm, a, I'm a white bloke, a white reader and interviewer, so definitely not your intended audience. But uh, I do feel like I got a lot out of the book and appreciate it deeply. But um, how do you feel about non-Indigenous readers engaging with it and, and being intellectually provoked by your text and some of them will be, you know, some of them will be disturbed by it too. Yeah. Well, I think this is the difference between a colonising people and a relational people and I remember um, Dr Little Watson, you know, speaking in, in that kind of way is that when I say I wrote this book for blackfellas, I didn't mean at the exclusion of whitefellas. I just was putting blackfellas at the forefront of, of my thinking and my writing and so what people will find is that, of course, they'll get something from it. It just it just wasn't of, of service um, to settlers in, in in the first instance and, and I guess I've just seen too much creative and intellectual work that 
you know, has an emancipatory agenda but in its service to settlers loses the power of it. And I know a lot of black fellas, we have this sense of betrayal when we engage in some of these things and we go, oh, this actually is catering too much to to a white audience, you know, to appease, to, to hold their hand. And we should be able to have conversations about stuff that that doesn't require us to, to perform that role of domestic servitude. And in, in refusing that 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 role, we're not we're not refusing the settlers. We're just saying, well, you just come in on our terms. And you might be able to eavesdrop at the table, but you don't get to be to speak on this one and you get to listen and learn, but you don't get to guide this conversation. And um, as, you know, growing from a black home, when old people sit at a table, we're used to kids being chased from that table that you know, don't always get to sit at the tables you want to sit at, um, that sometimes there are things that are not meant for us and that's okay and we can get some things but not all things. And I think uh, for a colonising people there's a sense of always being entitled to anything and everything that there are no rules, nothing is sacred, literally, that everything's free for the taking. And so this was just a, a, a reminding of the reader that, you know, this is a conversation that's being had between black fellas. And, yeah, you might overhear some things and you might learn and take some things. Just know it wasn't, it just wasn't for you. And I, so I've had lots of emails from people apologising for being white, having read the book. <laughs> yeah, right. And it's that's not what it's you know I'm I'm not saying don't read it it's just just know that um, you're listening in on a conversation um, mm. that wasn't actually designed for you but you'll still get something from it for sure uh, another day in the colony to to me it connotes the mundane prosaic nature of of racial discrimination and and dispossession experienced by by black people on on this continent is it like I roll you know another day in the colony uh, and. How does it manifest in an everyday way in in the smallest interactions for you? Yeah, I think, um, and I'm conscious that, you know, my experience of another day in the colony is very different to a uh, whole lot of other blackfellas in terms of what I I roll at, you know, and there's a whole lot of privilege that comes with eye rolling around my experience in the academy because I get paid well to be there, you know. So I feel a bit, like I don't want to say that I can speak for that experience of what it is to have another, you know, of another day in the colony, but for me and other, other mob that I know, it's what it serves, whether you're saying it as a joke in anger or whatever, is that it is a reflection of this place, not a reflection of our worth as a people. And there are so many times where we go into encounters that are quite, you know, violent and dehumanising where, you know, there's the risk of us walking away having internalised that. And I guess it's a kind of another articulation of never bowing your head when we say another day in the colony because it's about them, not about us. And so I think whatever mood it's articulated through, it does work in externalising that for, for blackfellas. And so that, that it kind of helps clear those that divide between how we are socially positioned but who we know ourselves to be at the same time and to stand strong in that. Where, where did it come from? Another day in the colony. In terms of blackfella Twitter, I was having a conversation with Dr. Melinda Mann some years ago, and we had an interaction about it. it was like, oh, just another day in the colony, like just another day in the office kind of thing. And, you know, 
years later, it just it's been it's taken off, and people have just used it in different kinds of ways to speak of what's going on. And I think initially it was done out of you know being wild. I think it was the time I was doing Wild Black Women, and just mm. you know every week talking about the stuff that makes us wild, and you know it's the the absurd kind of things that happen. And I think if you look at the hashtag, it's been used in all kinds of ways, and I think it just speaks to the power of Blackfella Twitter in terms of the kind of theorising that goes on that space in how we make sense of this. The, the, the book riffs off and is structured around a, a series of, of documents, um, personal, <laughs> academic, legal, that are salient to your life and experiences. Um, I want to ask you about one in particular, and I reckon you know which one that's going to be, the one that opens the book, which is a lovely drawing your daughter did on Harmony Day mm. uh, when she was in grade two, I think, that depicted her uh, culture, air quotes around culture. Um, I'm, I'm just wondering if you could describe it for listeners, please, and um, explain its significance and why you included it. Yeah, so this drawing, um, yeah, like you were saying, she was asked to draw a picture of, of her culture and she drew um, her family, but not in the kind of way I guess you, you may imagine. And so the, me and my husband are standing outside of our gunya and I'm holding boomerangs, wearing a little red frock, and uh, the husband's holding some spears, and he's standing above me, which I was deeply troubled by, and all the kids were featured as animals and elements, not random ones, but ones that they'd be named after in Yugamba language words. Um, they were not all um, in correct proportions, but we'll let that go. And uh, she came home and said, and showed me the picture and said, this is a bit, and told me what the task was. And I remember uh, my eldest son at the time going, that's not our culture. And instantaneously seeing something wrong with it. And I think he was like, would have been grade four at the time. When I first saw it, it struck me how when asked to to draw her, you know, draw her culture, which Harmony Day requires us to do instead of talking about race, which is, you know, it's Harmony Day. It was actually the International Day for Eliminating Race Discrimination. Got turned into Harmony Day where we talk about culture um, and reproduce racialized imaginings of ourselves. So not racist. Um, but anyway, what struck me, because at the time I was teaching in... Um, critical Indigenous studies. And my initial take on this picture was that I somehow failed as a black parent because I was like, she's got two black parents. She's been born and raised in a staunch black community that is Anala. You know, went to Aboriginal kindy. Uh, she's exposed to some highly sophisticated conversations around identity at the kitchen table because mum did a PhD around it. So I felt I'd done, performed adequately this task of racial socialisation, of, you know, raising a child with a healthy sense of self in a world in which their blackness is demonised. You know, I'd been very conscious that much like my father in terms of what he would tell me about myself. And my first reading of it was that Oh, she had she had just reproduced the colonial representation of Aboriginality that was divorced from her lived experience at some level, at some level. What was interesting is um, I used to use uh, the move, the trailer for the movie Jetta uh, when I was uh, teaching into a course called Gendered Business that looked specifically at the experience of Aboriginal women. And I got students to deconstruct the language in the trailer, particularly in the framing of Jetta and her her relationship with Mark Bark, because the language was so explicit. You know, it was a, it was an easy one to do. And um, bless Sunny Rosalie Kunoff Monks, who is no longer with us, um, it was just such a powerful teaching tool. But when I was um, using the trailer, I stumbled across the poster for the movie Jetta. And lo and behold, Jetta is featured in a red frock with her love interest standing above her holding spears in their natural habitat. Now, 
Maya had never seen the the poster. Mm. Maybe her teacher had seen the movie, but I, it wasn't about the movie. It was about this imagining that continues to get reproduced despite our best efforts. And I guess in the course of telling that story and reflecting on it, I I also had to check myself as well in terms of denying my child any sense of agency in the imagining of themselves because when when she had to explain that picture, she had to place herself in relation to country because we'd given them those names that located them, you know. So I, I kind of had to... Yeah, check myself on that one. You know, we had given our kids some tools from which they can, when asked to tell their cultural story, they can locate themselves and situate themselves to place despite these representations of us in, that, that speak to these clonal imaginings at the very same time. There's a chapter titled Ambiguously Indigenous <laughs> and you, you, you concede in that chapter that you might get yourself into all sorts of all sorts of trouble, all sorts of strife by by going there. But hey, you do anyway. You really you really want to. Can you explain what you mean by the term and where it fits into um, Aboriginal identity uh, in this country? Yeah. Paul, I think this one deserves its whole show. Um, yeah, I know, I know. It's a, it's a big one. <laughs> it's yeah. a big one. Look, I, I mean, I think so. What I wanted to do in our, in our community, there's, you know, there's, we know that the numbers of Indigenous peoples are increasing beyond the, the, you know, that can't be explained by birth rate alone. Um, that increasingly people are finding ancestry and reconnecting, and and it all. I think there's a whole lot of black fellas who are always finding connections to family and country and community be, because of you know the colonial project and its dispossessing work. So this is not to say that um, people can't reconnect, go on their journey. That you know children who are removed can't come home, but it speaks to this phenomena of people discovering ancestry and the way in which those who discover ancestry are often advanced in settler institutions in ways that blackfellas who are born and raised black just never can. And so it's it's not an attack on people who are on their journey and it's not an attack on people who are fair skin because it's not even about skin colour, it is about connection, but it's about what's what's going on here, what is the function. You know, we see this kind of accessorising of settler institutions with an Indigenousness that is that is divorced from place, an Indigenousness from elsewhere and anywhere, and there's not a requirement to articulate where that comes from. And in this conversation, I had to be very conscious that we're not, this is not the Andrew Bolt conversation because that's a whole different conversation. Sure. You know, this is about um, thinking about what's happening in this moment as we get more first of their tribes who can't identify which tribe they belong to being celebrated as, you know, a sign of our advancement. There's something we need to talk about here. And um, it's not that for me, you know, about policing people's identity, but what has concerned me is that there are people who are finding ancestry and claiming a place of which they do not yet know. There are limitations of what I can say and do, and that's why I draw my own story because I can't speak for other people. I can't take their stories. I can only speak from my place, and in doing so, I declare the the strengths but also the limitations of my knowing. And people who haven't been raised in that kind of way don't often respect those rules and via ancestry then can do all kinds of colonising things. Because they're Indigenous, they can get away with it. And and Mob is saying, no, that's not not how this works. And um, so I guess it's, you know, I... I had to think deeply about how how this works and the violence of it. And, you know, you only have to look, particularly here in Queensland, the way in which the native police functioned. 
you know, the Native police were recruited from places elsewhere to visit the most violence upon Indigenous peoples. And, and it worked in a way that meant that we would not be angry at uh, the settlers, but rather the, the Native police, because it was at their hands. And so it's about, this is a criticism of settler colonial institutions, not about indi- individual Indigenous peoples on their journey. And we need to separate that out. Unfortunately, people have centred their feelings in this conversation in a way that has undermined the advancement of the rest of the tribe. That's a, that's a real worry, I think. A, a digression, but a really important one, I think, and you mentioned the native police, which might be the ultimate example of uh, lateral violence in, in Indigenous Australia. I don't, I, I don't know, but it's a, it's a very difficult part of history for uh, certainly um, black Australians to come to terms with, isn't it? Yeah, I wouldn't call it lateral violence. I mean, I, I think it's it's colonial violence. Um, yeah, okay. I mean, it's not that they, they chose to do it. Mm. You know, I think the um, the sense of choice that Native police had too, we know, was fairly limited. And I think that uh, similarly there are people who are, you know, perhaps have more choice in this than what Native police once had but are certainly getting rewards for visiting violence upon um, Indigenous peoples in these institutions. And it's not just in academia, it's in the arts, it's everywhere. It's in health and social services. Um, We're increasingly seeing that the identified Indigenous positions are being given to people who um, have yet to work out how they identify with their own mob. And that goes against the very idea of how our mob fought for these positions. You know, we need mob who who can fight for mob, but they have to know their mob in order to do that. And so it's, uh, I think the issue has been is that people discovering ancestry and then automatically being jettisoned into these leadership or eldership roles without um, having gone through that, you know, that journey that we all have to go to as, as blackfellas and that accountability to community. Because if you don't live in a community, aren't known in your community, then no one holds you accountable. And people get away with doing what they're doing and it's happening all the time. And I, that's, I guess, the frustration that blackfellas are feeling is that those of us who live in community who are known, we can tell you about lateral violence because we get called out all the time, you know, that, that's it's accountability to our people. It's, you know, um, and we don't pathologise it as violence, but if you don't have those connections, then who holds you accountable? Who are you speaking for and representing in those places? And this idea that you can be Indigenous independent upon of anyone else, it's like that's not a thing. It is relational. It, you have to know who you are and where you come from and it always has to be communicated as such. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. 
your book's been out in the world for a few months now, and I know pre-orders were, were particularly among mob, were really strong, and it's gone to a couple of um, reprints. I wonder when writing from such a place of detailed and intense personal experience, how close people come to feel to you as the author and what implications that has for you as a public intellectual, what it's made you think about. Yeah, I was, I mean, in the place where I wrote it, I was in a place of, you know, my body had stopped and I was supposed to be having time out and, but I had to write, like I, writing for me is, is um, I, I've got to make sense of things in order to reclaim some sort of power over it, at least in, in the knowing of it. And so when I was writing it, I was writing from the place that I was at, but I was also thinking of the people who I know know that place too and thinking about what what I needed to hear and, and what I understood but also what I thought other mob needed to hear. So I was always thinking about the black reader in the course of writing it. But I have to say I was overwhelmed by the response from mob. Um, <laughs> those who loved it before they even had read it and, the, the, you know, the anxiety around, well, I hope I haven't let you fellas down. Um but then to what it did for people. And I, I got a sense of that when I wrote the Mianjin piece around my race discrimination case because that just, people just came forward with with their stories and, and just reading what it had done for people, I just, I didn't, I hadn't realised the power of, you know, um, what you can do in terms of, you know, sharing your story and, and you know, trying to make sense of it. And um, I have felt overwhelmed, I, I guess, by the response at times because invariably people then share their stories and I really enjoy those conversations we get to have, but it also can be really overwhelming to be in that place. So do you mean in, in terms of people coming back and share, sharing their traumas with you? Yeah, and or thinking that somehow you can fix theirs. I think I haven't worked out the balance right yet, but it's made me, you know, think, deeply about what is our responsibility in the work that we put out in the world. Um, and not that I didn't before that, but, you know, even the the Fuck Hope chapter, there's mob that are struggling with it and, you know, have issues with it. And, you know, I've had to, like, check myself and, and go, you know, what's the implication of, of speaking of this? The purpose of the book was not to write a book that would sell, but a book that would get us thinking and talking together out loud and about some things I thought, you know, we could create a space to talk about. And I've been overwhelmed about the uptake of, of the engagement in the, in these yarns and the sharing with Mob around that. And, uh, yeah, honestly, I'd say I was surprised. I've been surprised by how much Mob have taken taken it up. The Twitter response was pretty amazing too, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, the, the big com- ongoing conversation on, on Twitter about stemming out of your book. Yeah, and the reviews, particularly from black reviewers. Um, there was one that came out recently from Michaela Saunders and I read it and I got all teary reading because she she got it. She didn't like Fuck Hope, which I, I was cool with, but she got it in the way in which she was talking about screaming with delight when she saw the unpublishable story was Chapter 3 and the cover of the Feminist Law Journal. I was writing for the Black Reader when I was writing about those those blue sky moments even in the book of, of putting them in there and the yeah. those happy endings that I believe we deserved. And I love that the Black Reader got a sense of joy and delight from it. That That's what I wanted to do, not just, I guess, open wounds for people and, and have them feel overwhelmed. And I remember when um, speaking to Professor Rosa Brent who had, you know, um, done a review on the cover and, and had read it in its earlier formation and, and she talks about, you know, letting out a cathartic cry reading it. You know, like to speak to the souls of blackfellas is what I wanted to do and the fact that it did, I yeah, I feel very privileged to be able to be in that conversation at that level with Mob. Just in terms of speaking to the souls of more 
blackfellas. Um, I heard you're keen to get your book into prisons somehow uh, in order to, to think about the function of the text in that context and to examine how black prisoners might theorise about power dynamics. And, and is that something on the cards? Yeah, so we've been uh, working on a Blackfella book tour, certainly in Queensland. I mean, I'm doing the, the writers' festivals, but um, the book is written for, for Blackfellas and there's not always a lot of Blackfellas at writers' festivals, a few here and there. Um, so I wanted to make sure that we did a Blackfella book tour and we're currently in negotiation around a range of communities across Queensland uh, from the Torres Strait to Anala and uh, talking with youth detention centres and adult prisons as well. And I've been influenced by the work of Walter Rodney who talks about the role of the, the black intellectual and, you know, uh, he has this uh, book on groundings with my brothers and, and talks about the need to be grounded with each other in these conversations and not to teach but to share. You know, race is about power and having spent a few different occasions on the floors of police watch houses, I've been tested upon, upon what I know about power and I'm curious to, to be in conversation with more mob about how do we understand how power works and what we do about it in the knowing of it. And our black theorists are not just sitting in the academy, they're sitting in prison cells. They're on stages, they're on rooftops of police cars, they're in art galleries, they're on our Spotify playlists. Black theorising around race is everywhere and we have to go to where that theorising is. And so I'm really excited about um, the kinds of conversations we get to have and what I get to learn through those conversations. You alluded to these couple of experiences with the <laughs> with the so-called justice system. You know, a bit of bit of time in. We call it the legal system, not the justice system, Paul. <laughs> Le- the legal system, okay. You know, a bit of time in watch houses. How did that instruct you? I mean, in terms of you know you you being in a cell, um, you're a you're a black fellow. You've been arrested by the cops for for what? That's thinking time, right? The, the one I write about in the book, was it was really violent and it was really traumatic and it was really quite shocking, the ease at which that could happen and what they could do and what they could get away with, you know, just getting rid of the watch house footage, you know, and they can just do that. There's no consequence. Since then, though, you know, getting over the, the supposed shock of the encounter, I've been forced into situations where I've had to think about, well, okay, well, you know all these things, yet here you are. What are you going to do about it? And so there have been opportunities in which I have been rendered most powerless that I've got a more intimate and more instructive understanding of of power. And hence that's why I think that, you know, if you want to understand how power works, we'll speak to people who have been rendered powerless uh, because they're the most to gain from dismantling these oppressive power structures. And so for me, it's I've been in situations where I've, where I've been there and I've had to think through that. The stance I take up is different to the one my father took up. Our bodies are read differently as, you know, as a, as a black man and me as a lighter-skinned woman. The era in which he grew up in and all of that kind of stuff, that we have different different strategies and, and that, Race keeps evolving and moulding in various kinds of ways and, and so for me it's constantly thinking about trying to get on the front foot of the understanding of it, of how, it, how it's working, how it's functioning. We're always going to have to re-strategize, and we'll have different tools from generation to generation and I think one of the things of this book was to kind of share what, what I know at this time about this place and that what my kids will say will be different again. Chelsea, you mentioned the unpublishable essay, mm. which had me kind of gasping out loud and kind of laughing with horror, really. Um, it's 
an extraordinary chapter and you do many things in it, uh, including a textual comparison of Larissa Barrett's book, uh, Finding Eliza, about Eliza Fraser, and another by Kathy McLennan called Saltwater, um, before you go on to consider the white literary canon as host of um, perpetuating violence, really, and stereotypes against black people. In the context of that, can you just tell us what happened? What's, what's the story behind the unpublishable essay? So good friends and colleagues, Dr. Nicole Watson and Alison Whitaker were guest editors of a special issue of the Australian Feminist Law Journal. And it was to be around, you know, Indigenous women's writing in the academy and, and race. So they asked me to be part of this special issue. And it was like, you could do whatever you want. And at the time I had been reading Kathy McLennan's Saltwater, I'd had various people direct me to the book. Uh, Amy Maguire, journalist, um, had mentioned it. But different people had mentioned this book that at the time was, you know, people had been talking about and had been in the news and stuff. So when I read the book, I was horrified by the book of just how explicit the kind of racialized depictions of Aboriginal people were. And I got family live in Townsville. So it was it was just like, oh, wow, like, you know, this is, this is to me was, was just bizarre. And um, so I, I, pitched that what I was going to do, I was going to write about um, the the book and it just so happened that that book was written in the same year by the same publisher that um, of Larissa Brent's Finding Eliza, which Finding Eliza gives the whole sort of theoretical framework for understanding how to understand salt water, this whole, you know, white woman trapped in the tropics kind of narrative. So it was all good. I wrote the article, engaged a research assistant around some of the textual analysis. You know, it was footnoted to the hill. I think we had like 200 footnotes and references to the text. It wasn't a hard analysis. It was very explicit. So it was it was very much a show and tell, like look at this text and look at what, what um, Brent has showed us with Finding Eliza. It got reviewed and it got really good reviews and I thought all was fine. There was a sort of a... Peer, peer reviews, you mean? Peer, it got peer reviews. Yeah. Um, and I clearly by Indigenous peer reviewers, it would seem, in terms of how they responded to it. But then I would later be subject to an additional peer review process and there were concerns raised about defamation. And I was told to, like, make some changes. For the most part, I've removed a 1,000 words out of the, the article to appease them. But there was this ongoing battle back and forth and there was a resistance to publishing and, and it went on for like I think it was only two years this went on it was like a really long process but it, at the end of it they made a decision that it wasn't publishable at all even with my the concessions I'd made I'd been a bit uppity in my engagement with them but I'd still been compliant I hadn't broken any laws I'd still fulfilled what I was supposed to have done but you know though then was offered instead an editorial to tell the story about the omission of my piece and then they added a white male contributor to write a piece about defamation law <laughs> in this special issue for Indigenous female writers. Um, so that features... And they weren't, they weren't being ironic, right? No, there was just, there was no sense of how crazy that was. Um, the, and I, so I wrote the editorial and accepted that. And at the final hour, there was talk that when some of the other board members involved with the journal found out what had happened, because they weren't aware of this, they were quite horrified and did you know, say this should be included and, and go want, want to fight for me. But at this point I was like, this has gone on for too long. I'm happy for the editorial to go. And by that point I had found a place for the book because it had been legal by UQP that it was publishable. But I still got editing on my editorial where the um, one of the journal representatives had suggested that I also not name the author or the book in my editorial, which I didn't accept that. So Everything I got, there was still this sense to put me back in my place at every step of the way, even to that, that final part of getting that editorial in. 
just further to that, you talk in that essay about Stowe and I think maybe Patrick White too about the stereotypes that they perpetuate about black people at, at that time. I mean, I think, I, think, um, I think White wrote from Centennial Park quite compellingly for the, for the times, you know, about, about the outback and, you know, the black people that uh, Voss had um, encountered without ever, ever meeting a black person himself. But, um, I mean, how difficult is, is it for a black writer to challenge this white literary canon, um, which is so revered and respected in Australia today? It's almost... It's almost a literary benchmark for for novelists, you know. Um, what I'm going to be thinking about it was I had to um, do the Stowe Memorial Lecture at the Perth Writers Festival. Sasanki Bless had, you know, um, given me some great opportunities there before I'd written a book to, you know, to play in the space. And I was supposed to read this novel that, he, well, you know, I had to read it to kind of engage with it. And um, to the islands, was it? To the islands, yeah. And yeah, yeah. I, I couldn't read it. Like I tried so many times. I carried it with me everywhere. I was trying to get into it and I just couldn't, I couldn't read, I couldn't engage with it. But I, and then I, but I'm reading the reviews and how it's revered. And, you know, just the, I, I just found it amazing the way in which a massacre could, could be re-narrated to centre the benevolence of white people. And so, I mean, I've been used to seeing our stories told that in a way that doesn't represent us and, you know, conscious that any book written about black people is always presumed to be for a white audience and that was part of the resistance to go, no, I'm, I'm writing as though there are black people watching this TV, you know, um, mm. that we're in the same lounge room at the same kitchen table and, and I didn't want this text to be the kind of same dispossessing text that so many of these, these are because that's their function by design. Um, so, yeah, I think... I, I had to had to try and grapple with it in order to understand it, but also then to kind of then go, well, from what place do I write and speak from? And it's just fortunate, you know, that we follow in the footsteps of some great, particularly Indigenous female writers who have already critiqued this and who I draw on in that, that chapter who helped guide me to then think about and get, give a language for that. And, you know, Larissa Brent's Finding Eliza was so useful in so many ways and I've come back to that text so many times, you know, but that text won't get the same awards that Saltwater did and it didn't. But it was, you know, so instructive, so useful. Even That's why I'm kind of a bit mixed feelings about awards and stuff because, I, you know, the best black texts don't necessarily get the, win the prizes mm. but they do the work that the generations that follow need us to do for them. Last question, um, and again, it's a it's a big one, but it's a big chapter too. And that is, you mentioned it before, and it's and it's fuck hope. In it, you argue, and I'll, I'll quote you: "Hope is a most ridiculous strategy for blackfellas in a colony, precisely because it doesn't actually do anything for us. Hope is the suspension of black trauma in the midst of black trauma, and a premature death sentence for those destined to be betrayed by it. You recommend instead black nihilism. Can you just talk to that idea a little bit?" Well, I recommend being sovereign as opposed to um, investing in hope. Mm. And, and it, it comes out of Paul Beattie's book, The Sellout, um, where he talks about the stages of blackness and, you know, from the kind of, you know, self-hatred to black consciousness. And he talks about that stage three blackness as this race transcendentalism of, you know, it's it's the courtroom verdict. It's, it's, it's that um, sort of civil rights kind of blackness that we will overcome. And it's one that I think many of us, like to be in because it offers a sense of hope that that we'll get that that verdict that validation and I've had an experience where the verdict and validation hasn't come and there have been times where it has come and even then it didn't do what I think it should have done 
But he speaks about this, you know, fourth stage of blackness and, you know, it's the serious actor, it's the night in jail, which, of course, I can relate to. You know, it's it's the not giving a fuck and the freedom of not having to follow these rules because, you know, they're never afforded the protection of the policies that are designed for us. And when we do access them, when they, we do get them to work for, for us, they seek to change them, hence the Race Discrimination Act and its suspension three times when it comes to blackfellas and land in this place. Hence the need to then, you know, revise um, the Race Discrimination Act when blackfellas suddenly got a, got a win and had it work for them. That this place is, even when we get the wins, this place will change and modify ways to maintain the status quo. For me, retiring hope is reserving our labour and and protecting us in a more strategic way, that if we know it's all fucked, then maybe we won't exhaust ourselves in the way in which we have in the hope that these settler institutions will somehow see our humanity and and grant us our freedom because it's not in them, it's in us. And if we know who the fuck we are... We don't have to wait, you know, hang our hopes on white people. And Beattie says it's the nihilism that makes life worth living. So it's not like giving up on the world. It's a different way of living. And I just think of these moments, if you think about, you know, Rosalie Kunoff monks bless her, on Q&A saying, I'm not the problem. She was, she was I'm sovereign. Like she, she declared it and you felt her power. She wasn't appealing to anyone else to, to validate that. And so I think that, Retiring hope doesn't mean they're walking around this world being angry and, you know, hating the world. We're, we're, we're honouring our ancestors about, and, and who we are and knowing our own power and standing in it. I wanted Fuck Hope to give something to people who are trying to grapple with knowing how violent this place is and, and trying to work out what to do with it and how to live in it to live in the psychological violence that is settler colonialism. And so it's not to say give up. In fact, it's like there is a way to live a freer life if if, if we remember who we are. Chelsea Wadigo, thank you so much for chatting to us today for Book It In. It's been extraordinary and you've shared a lot. And for that, you know, we, we thank you. Thank you for having me. Chelsea Wadigo is the author of Another Day in the Colony, published by University of Queensland Press. In our new season of Book It In, we're also asking each of our authors for book recommendations. Here's Chelsea's. Well, I've been reading lots of things, but I probably want to um, recommend a book by Sister Ronnie Gorry, took out the Victorian Premier Literary Awards uh, just recently, The Story Black and Blue. It's it's a similar story in t- talking about the violence of this place, and particularly in, in, in terms of the experience of working in the Queensland Police Service. And Ronnie came through the police academy with my ex-husband, um, so I've known her and the family for some time and I just think it's a really powerful book in terms of she had a strategy where she worked 10 times harder of trying to be a good cop and still she wasn't protected from that violence and she writes in a different way. You know, as Blackfella, you feel like you're sitting at a kitchen table and, and it's it's a hard book because her life, she's lived so much and so it can be a hard reading. There's times I had to cry when I was reading it. But I just think the life writings of black women in this moment, you know, we've got the return of Sister Girl from Dr Jackie Huggins that's um, been released. I think the writings of black women have just been so powerful in this place. And so I'd recommend Black and Blue if you haven't read it and Catching Up with Sister Girl because it's also a book that I, I drew heavily on in my academic career as a black woman in the academy but also in Another Day in the Colony. This episode was produced by Bethany Atkinson Quinton. 
Alison Chan, Jane Lee and Daniel Simo. The executive producers are Gabrielle Jackson and Miles Martignoni. I'm Paul Daly. Thanks for listening to Book It In. Remember to subscribe and follow us on your favourite podcast app and tell your friends about us. We'll be back with another new episode next week. Until then, happy reading. <laughs>